what there is science for is keeping 1.5 degrees as your North Star. And every decision we make should be geared to say, does this advance the 1.5 degrees or is it going to be more destructive and take us in the wrong direction? Now, there are people who are arguing that the fossil fuel industry, which is you know, obviously responsible for the emissions that are going up, uh, needs to step up and do more. I think that uh, uh, Sultan Al-Jabra would say that. I say that, certainly. That's John Kerry, a special presidential envoy for climate from the U.S. Mr. Kerry was being interviewed during the COP28 climate summit at Dubai. Yes, welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I'm your host, Robert McLean. It's so great to have you on board. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Let's hear the rest of what Mr Kerry had to say. Uh, a phasing out of unmitigated uh, fossil fuel emissions. Uh, and what there is science for is keeping 1.5 degrees as your North Star. And every decision we make should be geared to say, does this advance the 1.5 degrees or is it going to be more destructive and take us in the wrong direction? Now, there are people who are arguing that the fossil fuel industry, which is you know, obviously responsible for the emissions that are going up, uh, needs to step up and do more. I think that uh, Sultan Al-Jabra would say that. I say that, certainly. They can and must do more in order to solve this problem much more rapidly. And, and so we're in a race against time, and, and I know that uh, everybody here does accept that concept. Secretary Kerry, what do you say, though, to those that still deny climate change, the climate deniers, the critics of COP28? Well, I think it's important to reach out and have a conversation. I, I, I think you need to invite them to a place where they could quietly and properly evaluate the evidence, listen to the scientists, compare notes, begin to ask the right questions. A lot of the denial is driven by dark money spending in politics and ideology. And you have people who are spreading disinformation, misinformation. Some uh, of the vested interests in the status quo don't want to change. And they do spend money to prevent votes. I mean, look at in Washington. No Republican voted in the House or Senate for the Inflation Reduction Act. Not one vote. And I think and there wasn't really an effort to try to find a common ground even. So uh, I think what we need is for people to depoliticize this. This is a global threat, a security threat, and it affects migrants and the flow of people into countries. People are leaving places they live today because they can't live in the heat. They can't grow their food the way they used to. They may not have the water they used to. It's too hot to work outdoors. I mean, a whole bunch of factors are adding to the plight of particularly disenfranchised folks, people who don't have the money and the choice to move. And, and, and that's why people are talking about the need for a just transition here. Now it's Microsoft guru, Bill Gates. Well, the, the collaboration between those sectors has improved a great deal. And I think you can go back you know, two years ago to the, the COP in Scotland, where the private sector really started coming 
Um, and you know, we are falling short of our aspirations in many areas. And you know, coming and saying, okay, how do we catch up? Uh, can we do better in one area? Which countries are doing particularly well? Are there models from that? You know, it is a a, a super important issue. Um, you know, it's definitely a glass half full. We haven't gone as fast as, as we'd like. And yet, particularly if you uh, see in the innovation pavilion, these uh, smaller companies, the ideas cover all the areas of emissions. And there's hope that many of these clean approaches, given time, won't cost extra. You know, today, solar electricity or uh, the batteries we use in, in electric cars, those costs have come down. And so that same magic of invention and scale up, if we apply that broadly, you know, that's why I have hope uh, that despite all these delays and incredible complexity, uh, that you know, the message coming out of these meetings does help drive progress. What happens if we don't do it? Well, there's, there's not some binary cutoff where at a certain temperature everything's horrible. Uh, we are going to have warming, um, you know, likely uh, above our goals. And that's where adaptation comes in to say, okay, because of this warming, what can you do that's very inexpensive, you know, like better warning systems for um, bad weather events or, or better weather data to help farmers know when to plant? And, and then, of course, the seeds, which are you know, probably the most exciting area. Uh, we will have to help the poorest adapt. Um, we will have to uh, try and, and make sure the damage to ecosystems like coral reefs is uh, somehow minimized. Uh, so, you know, we, fortunately we've made enough progress, we're not going to have the extreme cases like a four degree centigrade warming, uh, but we'll, we'll sadly uh, probably even miss the two degree goal and uh, so we'll, we'll have adaptation as a priority. Next we have the audio from a story in the Melbourne Age, actually an opinion piece by Ambrose Evan Pritchard. It has the headline, China's Green Surge Could Be a Watershed Moment for the World. China's green surge could be a watershed moment for the world. China's carbon emissions have either peaked already or will do this winter, seven years ahead of schedule. They may plateau for a year or two but will then go into exponential decline for mechanical and unstoppable reasons. The country's target of net zero by 2060 is likely to be achieved a decade earlier than previously assumed, and perhaps earlier than in Europe. This is a remarkable turn of events. Xi Jinping has made a giant strategic and economic bet on clean tech dominance, aiming to corner the world's renewable market and to break dependency on seaborne energy supplies running through the US 7th Fleet. The International Energy Agency says China accounts for 60% of all new solar and wind power being installed across the world this year and next. This rollout has combined with a drastic slowdown in China's rate of economic trend growth and the exhaustion of its Ponzi-style property model. Lori Milliverter, co-founder of the Center for Research on Energy and Clean Air, says China has reached a structural tipping point where the rollout of renewables is outpacing the rise in electricity demand. A drop in power sector emissions in 2024 is essentially locked in. We're likely to see a fall in total CO2 emitted in the first half of next year, he said. 
China is building a gargantuan network of clean energy bases in the Gobi, Ordos, and Tenga deserts, and further across the arid wastelands of the northwest. Solar and wind parks run along an arc from Inner Mongolia to Qinghai on the Tibetan Plateau. The electricity will reach the cities of industrial China through ultra-high voltage cables, which cut transition losses to 3.5% per 1,000 km. The scale is staggering. The Golmud Solar Park in Qinghai is already the world's largest solar project with 2.8 gigawatts GW, of installed capacity, drawing on 7 million panels stretching across the sands. The plan is to enlarge it sixfold within five years. The regime is approving two new coal plants a week. It does not mean what many in the West think it means. China is adding one gigawatt of coal power on average as backup for every six gigawatts of new renewable power. The two go hand in hand. The more renewable energy used, the more the need for coal peaking capacity. A large number of coal power units will be idle, says Chinese coal expert Li Ting. The coal plants will be used to buttress wind and solar rather than as baseload, and to avert a repeat of blackouts that traumatized the Chinese elites in 2021-2022. Coal companies will be paid a subsidy under a capacity price mechanism unveiled earlier this month to keep reserve power. S&P Global says the capacity usage rate will fall to 25% over the next two decades. The coal that is burned will increasingly come with carbon capture. The mining province of Shanxi has a project underway to turn CO2 into gold by making carbon nanotubes, which boost the power of lithium-ion batteries in EVs. Milliverta said the spike in Chinese emissions over the last two years is an anomaly caused by hydropower cuts following droughts. La Nina is now refilling the reservoirs of the Great Snowy Mountains and Tibet. Putin's war in Ukraine also led to a surge in coal use after liquefied natural gas, LNG, prices went through the roof. That episode is fading. China's LNG imports were up 30% in October from a year ago. At the risk of overtaxing the reader's appetite for figures, it is worth spelling out the enormity of what China is doing. The China Electricity Council says the country will add 210 gigawatts of solar this year, twice the entire solar capacity installed in the US to date. It is not going to stop there. Carbon Brief says China's output of solar panels was 310 gigawatts in 2022, it will be 500 gigawatts in 2023, and 1,000 gigawatts in 2025 four times the total installation of new solar worldwide last year. China is undoubtedly getting over its skis. The grid cannot yet absorb so much renewable power. Curtailment is a chronic problem. But it is equally obvious that China will not let that stand in the way. The grid will catch up. Xi seeks global supremacy. He was never going to let climate worries alone hold back China's rise. But today the two are in perfect alignment. The ramp up of battery capacity is even steeper. 550 gigawatt hours in 2022, 800 gigawatt hours in 2023, and 3000 in 2025. That will alleviate the shorter end of intermittency. The point to remember about Xi is that he was green long before it became fashionable. He wrote a weekly column 20 years ago as Zhejiang party chief warning that China's energy-intensive and high-polluting economic model was unsustainable. He defied the orthodoxy of breakneck industrialization and GDP worship, launching a radical, green GDP program in Zhejiang in 2004. It called on local governments to subtract ecological damage from the raw GDP figures. 
He was defeated by vested interests, one reason why he has been careful not to force a showdown too soon with China's powerful coal lobby. He is circumventing them instead by giving renewable companies priority access to cheap credit from the state-controlled banks. The brains behind the green GDP movement was Xi Jinping, today China's climate negotiator and the man who paved the way for the Paris Climate Accord. He helped Xi overcome entrenched opposition from China's old guard by using a Kuznets curve to show that a country's CO2 emissions peak and decline naturally as it develops, and therefore that climate concessions would not restrain China's development. This led to Xi's Yingtai evening chat with Barack Obama, and the deal that made Paris possible. Xi Jinping and U.S. negotiator John Kerry have replicated the formula this month in advance of COP28 in Dubai, calling for a tripling of renewable energy by 2030, as well as carbon capture. It will not be easy for the carbon cartel to sabotage COP28 by turning it into a fight between the West and the rest. The concept of concessions is in any case jejun. China itself is at the sharp end of a two-degree world. The water towers of Tibet are heating twice as fast as global mean temperatures. Melting glaciers are causing spring floods followed by droughts. The aquifers of the North China Plain are drying up. Xi seeks global supremacy. He was never going to let climate worries alone hold back China's rise. But today the two are in perfect alignment. Clean tech has become the spearhead of China's global economic conquest, and this changes the thrust of Beijing's climate diplomacy. It is no longer possible for foot-draggers to hide behind China. As Chinese emissions roll over and go into freefall, Xi will become an even bigger problem for them than Western preachers. As for those in Europe who think that a carbon border tax can protect the car industry against imports of cheap Chinese EVs, they delude themselves. China's battery king CATL will be making lithium-ion batteries at a zero-carbon gigafactory in Sichuan before Germany is anywhere close. The shoe could be on the other foot. Whatever way you look at it, peak CO2 emissions in China is a watershed moment for global geopolitics and for humanity. Let's listen now to another event at COP28 where we hear about the 10 scientific insights. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to this press conference for the 10 new insights in climate science. So we have a tight schedule. We've got 30 minutes for this press conference. Um, we will be um, going through the 10 new insights in climate science rather rapidly, and then um, we will be um, taking questions from the floor. Um, we have a number of authors on stage, and um, we look forward to answering your questions. So the 10 new insights in climate science is a joint initiative of Future Earth, Earth League, and the World Climate Research Program. It's an annual review of the state of climate research, summarized into 10 concise insights, each containing a rich and valuable synthesis for policymakers and for society at large. Unfortunately, um, Mr. Simon Steele, the UNFCCC Executive Secretary, um, was pulled away to, for the, um, more priority jobs with the negotiations. So he will not be with us today, unfortunately. Um, but we've had strong engagement with him uh, receiving this report and um, passing it on um, to the negotiators. So I'd like to introduce Professor Johan Rockström, um, Chair of Earth League and Director of the Potsdam Institute of, for Climate Impact Research. Um, to introduce the insights. 
Yeah, thank, thanks, Wendy, and um, great to have you here. This is a, a really important report. Remember that we do not only pass it on to Simon Steele and the UNFCCC, it then goes to all the chief negotiators. At the negotiations, we need to get science really at the center of the negotiations, and this 2023 version of the 10 NICs is really important because it not only highlights major advancements in science, but also key messages for COP28 here in Dubai. The number one insight is uh, a very unfortunate one, that we have unfortunately reached a point with so limited progress that even though we have very strong scientific evidence that 1.5 degrees Celsius of global mean surface temperature rise is not a target, it's not a goal, it's a physical limit. To hold it open is absolutely necessary, but it's inevitable to reach it without overshoot. And that this overshoot is still an uncertain degree of, uh, of length and depth, but we're talking at best of something in the order of three, four decades of up to 0.3 degrees Celsius, so up to 1.8 degrees Celsius, before returning back to 1.5 by the end of this century. To return back to 1.5 by the end of this century requires that we do everything right, phasing out fossil fuels, transforming the global food system, maintaining all the carbon sinks and stocks on land and in ocean, and scaling carbon dioxide removal. Everything has to happen simultaneously. That is insight number one. This therefore leads automatically to insight number two, which is that we have very strong scientific evidence that we need to phase out fossil fuels. This is the only way to hold ourselves within the very limited carbon budget of 250 billion tons of carbon dioxide currently to give us a 50% chance of holding that 1.5 line after overshoot by the end of this century. That's equivalent to six years of emissions today. And if we look at the data, we see that already our, to the left here, um, extraction of current fossil fuels, but also planned um, uh, investments in new coal, oil, and gas infrastructure way exceeds even the two degrees Celsius budget, and even the consumption patterns on oil, gas, and coal exceeds the 1.5 degrees Celsius budget. So we're talking deep transformations of a phase out of fossil fuels that has to reach net zero by the mid of this century. Insight number three, therefore, also follows from this, which is that we have no choice. We need to scale carbon dioxide removal, and this is a critical part of the pathway towards a manageable future. This requires not only investments, it requires um, thoughtful and efficient policies. What you see in this graph, which is not easy for me nor for you to read in detail, but check it in the document, it's the most comprehensive mapping of the different carbon dioxide removal technologies, not only in terms of the, red, the readiness for scaling, but also the degree of permanence. So you have everything from removing black carbon, carbon dioxide from coal plants through carbon capture and storage with very high degree of permanence, but also very low degree of permanence from biological carbon capture systems like afforestation. All of this leads to different policy measures, but also ultimately to different evaluations economically. That is um, insight number three. On insight number four, it's about <clears throat> following also on the low permanence of some of the investments in carbon dioxide removal technologies, the recognition that there's a tendency of over-reliance on natural carbon sinks. That we tend to um, 
um, have voluntary carbon markets and offsetting mechanisms that are a bit too optimistic in terms of using investments in nature climate solutions like afforestation and preservation of ecosystems as if they could be used as offsets against slower uh, rate of uh, a phase out of oil, coal and gas. We show very strongly in the evidence that we have today that that is not a possibility that we can count on. We have to act on nature climate solutions, really important, simultaneously as we act on fossil fuel phase out. And that is uh, shown on, on this graph in terms of when we lose um, abilities of ocean sinks and ecosystem sinks, it gives us a smaller carbon budget, which leads to a higher degree of pace of fossil fuel phase out. But if we do not increase the rate of fossil fuel phase out, but lose carbon sinks in nature, we turn ourselves into an even higher temperature outcome in terms of climate risk. That is quite straightforward, but it's important to have that, that in mind in the policy discussions. Number five is that we need joint governance in order to address biodiversity and climate. These are two intertwined challenges. They're part of the same energy imbalance assessment of the planet. We need to recognize that you have joint drivers behind both ecosystem change and um, climate crisis, which requires um, a much more integrated effort in terms of governance and in terms of policy. We're not suggesting an integration of the two UN conventions, UNFCCC and UNCBD, but we are arguing that we need a much closer policy interaction, particularly on the ground. And the example given here is on marine coastal ecosystems where marine coral reef uh, degradation, overfishing interacts with ocean heat, which in turn in gives impacts on, on livelihoods and communities. And we know this, we understand this so well. We have Carlos Nobres here representing the exact the same challenge on biodiversity, afforestation, and climate change in the Amazon, for example. It's a, it's a continuous integration that we require to be able to address this challenge. Number six is a really important new finding on the fact that we are experiencing more and more extreme events. But the compound events, meaning that you get additionality of reinforcement, for example, of cyclones and fires occurring simultaneously in the same biomes, uh, leading to an impact that two catastrophes, when they occur simultaneously or, or with a very high frequency or short frequency of time in between them, lead to an even more amplified ecological and, and, and social impact. And that these compound effects are something that we are not very good at mapping and certainly not in terms of um, valuing in loss and damage situations, but they have to be integrated in the loss and damage uh, assessments. Number seven is the latest findings on mountain glaciers that are losing uh, ice mass very quickly. They're accelerating. We have today a significant mapping across the world of all the mountain glaciers. This is a very detailed assessment. It's incredibly rich. I really encourage you to have a look at it, uh, particularly those with black circles here, which are regions that are not only losing ice fast, but highest risk of impacts on social and economic development. 
Not surprisingly, you have the Southeast Asian and uh, Central Asian uh, low latitude uh, inland glaciers like the Himalayas, which are um, freshwater source to 1.65 billion people with high risk over the next 30 years of, uh, of losing uh, more than 50% of their freshwater supplies because of, of ice melt. So we're talking major, major impacts if this is um, allowed to continue. Inside 8 is, is a new finding on um, uh, refugee risks in, in climate impacts. We are uh, continuously concerned of how climate change uh, causes risks of disruption, of displacement and migration. This insight shows that we have the reverse trend as well. The climate change impacts so hard that uh, communities lose their ability to move. They simply end up being stuck in immobility, involuntary immobility, because of climate impacts. And this is a, a new, um, well, new, it's been certainly the factor for many communities for a long time, but it's something that we're lifting out now for the first time. Nine is uh, the new tools to operationalize justice, and that justice has so many different dimensions, and particularly challenges of, of recognition and procedural justice interacting with uh, uh, wealth redistribution, the distributive justice dimensions, that we need to understand that these uh, different dimensions of, uh, of making voices heard and how it then leads to wealth redistribution, not least with regards to compensation for damage, are fundamental dimensions of justice. And finally, the challenge of reforming the global food system in order to make it transition from a source of emissions to becoming part of the solution, which we are not making much progress on, but there's so much more work to be required, and we're bringing this in as one of the key elements that needs to be acted upon uh, as, as actively as the fossil fuel phase-out. So there you are, with a 10 and a rapid overview. Uh, I haven't given it what it deserves in terms of the overview, but again, I really recommend you to uh, read the insights, and we have deep dives coming from my colleagues here, which will be uh, really valuable. So thanks for that, and back to you then, Wendy. Thank you, Johan. Oh, sorry. Would you like to speak to this one? Oh, yes, this is uh, probably the most important part. Um, Salim Hook, uh, known to many of you, I'm sure, um, professor from Bangladesh, uh, probably one of our biggest climate adaptation heroes. I think he's been a voice for the most vulnerable communities in the world for 20 plus COP meetings. Uh, he was part of the 10 NICs from the very beginning, uh, co-author also of this um, uh, seventh edition who tragically passed away just um, a few months back now. And um, we, we therefore attribute this, this 10 in, in his honor. And um, he was very actively working on these insights this year. And um, it's a great loss for all of us, but certainly for, for climate action in the world. So uh, we just wanted to uh, commemorate that here as well. So now I would like to welcome questions to our panel. Um, I will firstly introduce the panel and then I will um, ask for questions. So, um, of course, Professor Rockstrom is available for questions. And then after him, we have Dr. Olivier Geddon, 
um, Oliver Geddon, sorry, from the German Institute of International and Security Affairs. Oliver is also co-chair of IPCC Working Group 3. Um, after him, we have Aditi, Dr. Aditi Mukherjee, from, who is director of the Climate Change Adaptation and Mitigation Impact Area Platform at the CGIAR. Um, then we have Dr. David Abura, who is from Cordeo East Africa, and he's also chair of the IPBES assessment, a new chair. And finally, we have uh, Dr. Ploy Akakulvisit from Stockholm Environment Institute in Bangkok, Thailand. So I see we have a, a question already. Um, with, please um, identify yourself, and if you direct your question to someone in particular, please say so. Uh, yeah, thanks. Um, I'm Damien Carrington at The Guardian. Um, a question for Professor Rockstrom. So the second insight is about um, the necessity, the requirement, I think the report says, of a phase-out for fossil fuels. Um, so I'm wondering uh, if you could respond to the words of President of COP, Zopna Jabba, uh, which we reported earlier today, where he said that there was no science behind um, the phase-out of fossil fuels being necessary for achieving 1.5 degrees, and also that phasing out fossil fuels would mean that there would be, uh, you wouldn't allow so, uh, socio-economic development and we might have to go back to caves. Yeah, so the, the IPCC 6 assessment has two clusters of scenario families that can hold the 1.5 degrees Celsius limit, the C1 and C2. The C1 is roughly 100 scenarios that takes us direct to 1.5. We conclude in the 10 new insights in climate science that these are not possible to achieve anymore because we have not made progress and the remaining carbon budget is so limited, down to 250 billion tons of carbon dioxide and all the other climate forces continue to rise. So at best, the only window that is open are the C2 family of scenarios. These are 115 scenarios that can hold 1.5 after overshoot. In order to hold that overshoot requires that we keep within the 250 billion tons of carbon dioxide. The only way to do that is to phase out fossil fuels by 2050. That is in all those scenarios. It's very clearly stated and shown in the IPCC assessments. It, uh, it requires a cutting of global emissions by half every decade. So 50% by 2030 and then continue down to a net zero point by 2050. Undoubtedly, there is a residual by 2050. So it is, Sultan al-Jabera may be right about that. It may not be an absolute zero by 2050. There will be a residual that will have to be abated through carbon dioxide removal technologies. But remember that all these C2 scenarios that takes us to 1.5 after overshoot phasing out fossil fuels by 2050, assume very optimistic scaling of carbon dioxide removal at the scale of 5 to 10 gigatons of carbon dioxide per year from 2050 onwards. And that is in addition to the fossil fuel phase out. But that's not enough. These runs also assume that we'll be able to transition the global food system from source to sink and that we'll be able to maintain all the carbon stocks and sinks in nature, on land and in ocean, no tipping points, everything that is done in the IPBES assessment in terms of preserving biodiversity will deliver. So I do not see scientifically as there being any other communication that we need to phase out fossil fuels. And not only that, phasing out fossil fuels is actually just one wedge among five additional wedges that have to operate in parallel and deliver simultaneously on ocean, on land, on negative emissions, and agriculture. Thank you. I'll take the question on the end um, at the right. Yes, thank you. Cool. 
Thank you. Uh, James Murray from Business Green. Uh, sorry, just to build on that, the, the most likely sort of compromise outcome would see countries are calling for a phase out of or phase down of unabated fossil fuels. You, you've been very clear on calling for a phase out of fossil fuels. Can you clarify whether you think a phase, the, the unabated term would be sufficient to meet that 1.5 goal, or do we need more clarity around it? Yeah, I, I think we need more clarity so we all know what we're talking about. And the challenge is, again, that um, you cannot use carbon dioxide removal technologies to allow for a slow, a slower than the trajectories shown in the C2 scenarios in the IPCC for the phase out of fossil fuels because the modeling runs have already factored in assumptions of very optimistic scaling of negative emission technologies in addition to fossil fuel phase out. So the difficult to abate components have to be recognized and respected. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm very much in support of Sultan al-Jaber's emphasis that we cannot destroy the global economy. Of course, we need to have an orderly pathway and we need to be able to hold socioeconomic development, particularly in developing countries, functioning. But we have to recognize that if we are to hold 1.5, failing which will give us even more socioeconomic costs for the world, particularly Global South, that that is a, a balancing act that we have to handle very carefully here at COP28. But there's no way of simply allowing CDR or carbon dioxide removal to somehow slow down the pathway of oil, coal and gas emission reductions. I'd like to give the other panelists an opportunity to, to respond here. Um, Oliver and then Ploy. Yeah, maybe just to add, uh, the language of abated versus unabated is, of course, uh, highly ambiguous. Uh, and I think what we have to recognize, even if you use carbon capture and storage, you will never get to 100% capture rate. Mm -hmm. So even if you would use a coal power plant with CCS, it's not that there are no emissions. Uh, there would be at least 10% left with certain industrial installations uh, it would be even more. So it, 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 it does not add up. And if you look at the global scenarios, uh, they use CCS sometimes also uh, in, uh, so in, in, in the energy system, but most of it goes into uh, industrial installations where there are really no other options like cement. or no, and you, They have to say no other option for the time being. Also, that could change. And then increasingly in combination with bioenergy or direct air capture uh, to create negative emissions or net negative emissions. Thank you. Ploy. Thank you. I just wanted to add that you know we've seen some exciting developments with 118 countries committing um, to the tripling of renewable capacity and doubling of energy efficiency pledge um, that was just released yesterday. And the science demands that just as it's non-controversial to pledge that, it should not be controversial to pledge to phase out all fossil fuels. Um, that is what we need to keep the 1.5 degree C goal alive. Obviously, we're going to land on various iterations of that language in the final cover decision text. And if some um, qualifying term like unabated appears, it needs to be clearly well-defined um, with science-based thresholds, like what Oliver just said, so the IPCC um, would qualify it as over 90% um, of CO2 being captured from coal or gas-fired power plants. Thank, Thank you. you. So we have two questions in the front, with the white, white shirt first, and then the dark, dark shirt, and then there's a 
Hi, um, Ben Cook here <laughs> from the Times. Uh, I have a question for you, Oliver, uh, in connection to what you just said about the efficacy or lack thereof of carbon capture. I was wondering whether you'd like to respond to comments made by Darren Woods, uh, the chief executive of ExxonMobil yesterday, who said the negotiations here had not focused, or rather had focused too much on fossil fuels themselves and not enough on the emissions of those fuels that could perhaps be captured. Yeah, I mean, this is an argument you have heard already at the beginning of this year, also from, from COP President uh, Al-Jabeer in, in distinguishing between the phase of the fossil fuels and fossil fuel emissions. Um, I find it a little bit questionable coming, these comments now coming from an industry that has been promising CCS basically uh, for two, dec two decades and not, has been not very successful in bringing them uh, online. I mean, many are questioning if these CCS projections uh, are, are even feasible. So I think uh, it's only valid uh, to, to focus on the, let's say, more direct way and say we need to get rid of this level of fossil fuel. We need to bring them down to as close to zero as soon as we can. Uh, and I would say CCS in the long run or CO2 capture and storage will also run into difficulties with limited storage capacity. So we should not use this capacity uh, for coal and go, uh, coal power plants and gas power plants. I mean, in the oil system, it's not really an option. Uh, and in the long run, we're going to need a lot of geological storage capacity for carbon dioxide removal options. Thank you. So we have another question at the front here. And I see two more. We have five minutes left, so please let me know if you have a, a question. Yeah, Joy Deep Gupta from the third poll. Question for Dr. Mukherjee. Is there any scenario in which the mountain glacier mass loss that we've talked about can be slowed down? Is there any emission scenario, or is this what you've written inevitable? And maybe Professor Rockstrom would like to also answer that. Go ahead, Aditi. It's automatic, just yeah. go ahead. Um, so given that these are very slow processes and given the level of warming that we are already committed towards, so it's almost inevitable that these glaciers would melt in the near future up to 2100. For example, some of the earlier work shows that uh, in the Hindukush Himalayas, even at a 1.5 degree, because of also more warming in the higher um, altitudes, we are already talking of loss of over half of the glacier mass. And that would only become even more pronounced when we are reaching to a higher degree of global warming. So the answer is yes, these are already committed that these uh, glaciers would be lost unless there is a very um, uh, drastic reduction in the, in the emission of greenhouse gases. Thank you. Then we have a question, the blue shirt at the back there. And we have James over here, and then the final question. Yeah. Thank you so much, Rob Meyer, HeatMap News. Um, I wanted, to, I think it's interesting that the report pairs the phase out of fossil fuels with the need for greater CDR. And I think there's 
often when, when there's reporting or people talk about CDR, it's seen as a tissue for the fossil fuel industry and for continued emissions. I wonder if you could address that point, um, given that I think some people are likely to respond to that, even given the, the need for CDR in this report. Thank you. No, I think the report very clearly says that CDR can only be seen as a complement uh, to emissions reductions, not as a substitute for emissions reductions. Of course, in the general climate debate, it often appears that uh, proponents of continued fossil fuel use then evoke CDR. Uh, but if you look in IPCC scenarios, and also if you look at national uh, net zero emission scenarios, uh, it usually comes only on top, counterbalancing in net zero pathways, uh, hard to abate residual emissions often uh, from industrialized sectors, at least in OECD countries. So I would say we have to get more concrete, more hands-on about it, also see what really can be done with carbon dioxide removal, um, because apart from the approaches we're already using, it's basically forestry, which will be vulnerable to climate change uh, as well in the coming decades. Uh, we need to find out what we can do with technologies like direct air capture with CCS, bioenergy with CCS, if the bioenergy or the biomass is sourced sustainably, or with other technologies that are really in an early stage uh, of development, like enhancement or weathering. But again, it's not a substitute for emissions reductions. It's a complement until net zero. And if you really have to return from overshoot, we need to get net negative and need even more of carbon dioxide removal. But also after the point of net zero, we will be able to reduce residual emissions further. So on that side of the equation, above the zero line, it's not uh, the end of the technological, technological development uh, in, let's say, 2050. Okay, thanks. Now we have a question over here for James of the, the blue shirt. Thank you. Thanks, Wendy. Um, James Fawn from the Earth Journalism Network and the Climate Change Media Partnership. So I understand there are many different kinds of carbon dioxide removal, everything from planting trees to direct air capture. Following on from the previous question, are there studies about the cost of, of carbon dioxide removal and it, are there indications that the cost is coming down? Uh, the IPCC did such assessments. They are obviously hard to do for technologies that aren't there yet. Uh, but you can assume that uh, CDR methods that uh, come in a modular shape, like direct air capture units, uh, keeping in mind that direct air capture as such is not removal, depending on if you use the CO2 for a syn fuel, uh, then it's not a removal. But if you combine it with storage, it's a modular technology. And cost curve will go down and the learning curve will go up. I would say similar to solar PV, but you don't know exactly how it will play out. So the US is now betting uh, on direct air capture with these direct air capture hubs. Uh, the European Union will go into that uh, as well, but you cannot say where we will be at 2050. The US government has set a target of $100 per ton. Nobody knows whether that's realistic or not and where your carbon prices nationally will be uh, at that point. Thank you. Then we have a question here at the front. Hi, Emma Gatton from The Telegraph. It's just a point of clarification. Obviously, we don't have Simon Steele here, but I wanted to know, I mean, can we say that this report is backed by the UN, supported by the UN, FCCC? What, what would be the relationship there? 
Yeah, that's a good question. Um, thank you. So Simon Steele um, and his predecessor, Patricia Espinosa, have received this report on behalf of the NFCCC every year. They've engaged with us and distributed the report to, their, um, to the negotiators that are gathered here. I, I don't think you could say that it, it is endorsed by them, but it's certainly they welcome it and receive it every year. Um, Jorn, would you like to add anything? No, what, what I think is good emphasizing is that this report is, is not, of course, um, uh, it's a complement to the IPCC. It, it's today produced by the World Climate Research Program together with Future Earth and the Earth League. And together, this represents a significant part of the climate science community, Future Earth, the largest network of global sustainability scientists around the world. So, of course, it cannot be given a UNFCCC formal endorsement, but it represents uh, a synthesis effort by, by a very large group of, of, of scientists in the world. And now we have a comment about carbon trading. Reducing greenhouse gas emissions like carbon dioxide is a crucial component in the fight against climate change. One way governments are trying to reduce their emissions is through carbon trading, a market-based system that aims to provide economic incentives for countries and businesses to reduce their environmental footprint. Almost every activity from travel to farming and even watching this video leads to the emission of gases such as carbon dioxide, contributing to the greenhouse effect responsible for climate change. Unlike voluntary offsets where consumers can choose to pay a company to balance out their carbon footprint, such as funding reforestation projects which absorb CO2, carbon trading is a legally binding scheme that caps total emissions and allows organisations to trade their allocation, hence the term cap and trade. All cap-and-trade systems have emissions limits calculated by governments and policymakers, which are compatible with their target of limiting environmental damage. Carbon allowances or units totaling up to this maximum are then allocated to companies and can be traded on a market. Each year, organisations with a large carbon footprint are allocated an allowance proportionate to their historical emissions, which can then be bought and sold on a secondary market. If, for example, a company knows they have gone over their allowance, then they will need to buy more carbon units from their carbon market. But if they implemented measures to reduce their emissions, they can sell any excess units on the market. A credit, which can start from $12 or run as high as $125, allows for the emissions of pollutants equivalent to one tonne of carbon dioxide. The price of carbon is determined by supply and demand. Supply of units is capped at a level deemed acceptable, and their cost will rise and fall depending on whether firms find alternatives to polluting. By assigning a price to damaging activity, the system provides a financial incentive for firms to reduce emissions, whilst lowering the overall cost of these reductions as the cheapest improvements are made first. Although carbon trading seems great in theory, it hasn't been easy to put into practice. The first international carbon market was set up under the UN's 1997 Kyoto Protocol on Climate Change. However, following widespread reports of corruption and abuse of the system, the market collapsed. A report in 2015 found that an estimated 80% of sustainable projects under the trading scheme were questionable, enabling emissions to increase by roughly 600 million metric tonnes. Since then, there hasn't been a consensus on the best way to implement a cap-and-trade scheme globally, 
However, there are a number of emission trading markets around the world at both national and regional levels. The oldest active carbon market is the European Union's emission trading system, which launched in 2005, while other schemes are operating in Canada, Japan, New Zealand, South Korea, Switzerland and the United States. At the start of 2021, China launched the world's largest carbon market for its thermal power industry. The sector accounts for 40% of China's emissions, equivalent to double the emissions covered by the EU's carbon market. As governments tightened environmental standards, the total value of global carbon markets grew 34% in 2019, reaching 194 billion euros. It's the third consecutive year of record growth and values these emissions nearly five times their worth in 2017. And the number of cap and trade markets is likely to increase as many countries, cities and companies worldwide try to meet their ambitious pledge of net zero carbon emissions by 2050, a target set by the United Nations. Cap and trade systems have been successful in tackling environmental problems in the past, including one covering sulfur dioxide emissions, which helped reduce acid rain in the US. Compared to direct regulations or taxes, carbon trading doesn't require as much government intervention in the economy, leaving businesses to find their solutions. And as long as the the cost of emitting greenhouse gases is high enough to encourage these alternatives, many environmentalists believe it could be a relatively straightforward and efficient method to drive decarbonisation. However, an oversupply of carbon allowances during the 2008 financial crisis saw the price of polluting fall in the EU's trading system, reducing the incentive for businesses to change their behaviour. In response, the EU created the Market Stability Reserve, or MSR, a decade later, which gives the European Commission the ability to tighten or loosen the supply of carbon units. As a result, their price tripled from €8 Euros per tonne of CO2 to around €25 Euros per tonne of CO2 over a year. In turn, the energy sector moved output away from coal power stations to cleaner, natural gas-powered electricity production that produces less CO2. In 2019, emissions fell by 8.7%, the largest decline since 2009. The EU's carbon market has also caught the eye of hedge funds and traders. Whereas OPEC controls a third of the global oil supply, the EU regulates all carbon allowances within its emission trading system. And with the EU's long-term aim of gradually increasing the price of carbon units, these are seen as a popular long-term investment. While the COVID-19 pandemic led to a glut of carbon allowances as activity across the economy fell, prices are now back up above pre-COVID levels. However, there are concerns that heavy emitters may find loopholes in carbon trading systems. Unlike the earlier Kyoto Protocol Agreement, the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement commits all signatories, not just the most developed economies, to impose carbon emission targets. If implemented successfully, analysts believe that international emissions trading could cut global emissions by around 60 to 80% by 2035. Critics of carbon trading worry that countries facing economic difficulties might be tempted to cheat, either by making their overall emissions cap too generous or using accounting tricks to overstate reductions. For example, a nation might reduce its carbon emissions by building a wind farm to replace a coal-fired power station. This would free up a portion of its carbon allowance, which could be sold to another country but might still count as a reduction in the first country's emissions, even though overall output hasn't changed. There are also fears that major polluters might relocate across borders to avoid signing up for a cap-and-trade scheme or finding a more lenient jurisdiction. 
Another criticism of carbon markets is that developed countries, which have done most of the polluting to date, are able to invest in low carbon technology and have reorientated their economies to less carbon intensive activities, unlike poorer nations. Climate campaigners also argue that too much focus on merely redistributing pollution obscures the fundamental need for all countries to transition away from fossil fuels in the near future to avoid severe and irreversible damage to the environment. The increasing popularity of cap-and-trade schemes and the rising price of carbon allowances are forcing companies to consider their effect on the climate and has led to a reduction in emissions. Although imperfect, the EU's carbon trading scheme is a model for other economies to emulate. With the creation of the biggest carbon market in China and the US's return to the Paris Climate Agreement, the global carbon market's size and importance looks set to grow. Let's listen to an interview now with the chief executive of the UAE-based firm Crescent Petroleum, that's Majid Jaffa, who said blaming the oil and gas industry for the climate crisis is like blaming farmers for obesity. To this methane reduction pledge, I thought it was really interesting because COP28 has really put methane on the agenda. When it comes to the reaction, though, it's been mixed. Antonio Gutierrez, of course, over at the UN, says this methane pledge by the giants behind the climate crisis falls short. How do you respond to that? So, first of all, you know, blaming the producers of oil and gas for climate change is like blaming farmers for obesity. It's our societal consumption that is uh, the issue. Uh, now, you, we will still need oil and gas throughout the transition, and there is no scenario, even the most ambitious scenario, that does not include that. Gas to back up intermittent renewables, and oil makes so much of what will, the transition will rely upon, from solar panels to wind turbines to the electric cars themselves, from the roads they drive on to the tires to the interiors. We will still need it. So with all respect for that viewpoint, um, perhaps he should start with the UN itself. Mm. Maybe he should have traveled here in a wooden boat with sails rowing when the wind died down. Maybe he should move the UN staff to upstate New York to a forest somewhere where they can grow their own food without fertilizers. He has to take away all their smartphones. They can't use email. They can use maybe carrier pigeon for e UN communications. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm just making the point how much the world still requires oil and gas. We need to produce it cleaner, absolutely, and we can. And the commitments here are a big step in that direction. And we, need, we will be using it differently as well. But we will still be needing it. So actually calling for lack of investment in it. We've seen what's happened in the last few years. We've had energy price spikes, more energy poverty in the developing world that the UN is supposed to be about, the sustainable development goals. Climate action is one of the 17. The others seem to be neglected, and the developing world is calling for that. And more burning of coal in places like China and India because gas became too expensive for lack of investment. So we're actually failing on all three legs of the so-called energy trilemma, sustainability, affordability, and availability. We've got to keep that in mind. Let's now to Hamish McDonald on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's breakfast programme.
Overnight, the government passed its nature repair bill after reaching a deal with the Greens. There are two big changes to the government's original bill, with the Greens having expedited the inclusion of a water trigger and taking offsets out of the scheme. Uh, it is a significant piece of legislation, but of course it's been a chaotic final sitting week where the focus has largely been on the response to the release of indefinite immigration, immigration detainees. That's created an 11th hour headache for the parliament. Tanya Plibersek is the Environment Minister. She joins me now. Good morning to you. Now, to your bill, uh, it's fundamentally changed from being a nature repair market bill to, to now the nature repair bill. What's the difference? The Greens say they've negotiated offsets out. What does that mean? Help us understand it. Well, this is a really exciting opportunity to see more private and philanthropic investment go into nature repair in a way that prevents greenwashing. So, what we'll have is um, landholders like traditional owners, farmers, um, to private landholders more generally, paid to restore and protect nature on their land. And <clears throat> it means that, for example, if you're a farmer and you've got a remnant rainforest on your land, you can get paid for keeping the feral species and the weeds out of it. If you're a traditional owner in central Australia, you're doing cultural burning and reintroducing threatened species uh, into your land, you can get paid to do that work. We are really excited about this as an opportunity to bring additional investment <clears throat> into uh, into nature across Australia. Uh, if you need to take a glass of water or a sip of water, <laughs> please do that. I know it's early Thank in the you. morning. I'm sorry about that. Sometimes it takes a little while for the voice to warm up. I'm talking to Tanya Plibersek, who's the Federal Environment Minister, also responsible for water. Uh, who will monitor this? Uh, it'll be monitored in the same way that uh, Australian carbon credit uh, carbon credits are. It'll be monitored based on um, it'll have uh, specific um, methodologies in the same way that a carbon credit does. Uh, those methodologies will be recommended to me uh, as the minister, uh, and the um, the uh, same sort of conditions will apply. And we'll make sure that the um, that the methodologies are consistent. It'll the methodology will have, for example, the size of the area that's being um, protected. It'll have the threatened species that are on that land. The clean energy regulator will regulate in the same way that they do with Australian carbon credit units to make sure that there is consistency, transparency, that the projects can be verified, that they will be tracked and that they will be monitored. Mm. But, I mean, you'd be aware, obviously, of the, the issues with the carbon credit system. You're responsible for water as well. You would have seen what uh, water trading has done to the market and how open that has been uh, to rotting and, and malfunction maybe is a more generous way of putting it. How certain are you that a system like this can work, given that we're talking about very small-scale stuff? Well, I think this is the benefit of the approach we're taking. There were problems with Australian carbon credit units. <clears throat> That's why we got the Chubb review um, to do a, a really good review of methodologies to make sure that people are getting what they pay for when they pay for carbon offsets. We'll take the same integrity approach to this market. And you mentioned the water market. In fact, we're investing millions of dollars to bring integrity to the water market as well, because we don't want cowboys operating in the water market. Everything we've done in the carbon market, the water market, and now the nature market is consistently aimed to make sure that we are avoiding greenwashing. Uh, already, how, how are you doing that though? In... 
Well, b- because we'll set up methodologies guided by ecologists and scientists. You won't be able to get funding unless you're using an approved methodology. Um, the uh, the the methodologies um, will be publicly available. <clears throat> They'll be tracked. The clean energy regulator will have a database where you'll be able to see openly uh, what sort of projects are going on and what sort of methodologies are being used and uh, who is using them. Uh, and um, you know, if they're if they're not operating well, we'll see the same sort of cleanup. Um, opportunities that we saw uh, with the carbon market where we now know, we see that uh, it wasn't being um, appropriately regulated in the past. We've had the Chubb review and we're putting it onto a firm footing now so that people can have every confidence. Tanya Plibersek, uh, we'll let you go and uh, warm up your tonsils for the rest of the day. Thanks very much. Nuclear power is not something I favour at all, but out of a sense of fairness, let's give Australia's Shadow Energy and Climate Change Minister, Ted O'Brien, a few minutes. He's talking here on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's Radio National Show, Breakfast. He's talking here with the host, Hamish MacDonald. Thousands have gathered in Dubai this week for the COP28 Climate Summit, with more than 100 countries this year pledging to triple world renewable energy use by 2030. The conference, though, faces real challenges with revelations most fossil fuel producers aren't accurately counting their emissions and the summit's president casting doubt on the science behind the need to phase out their use. 20 countries, including France and the United States, have pledged to triple nuclear energy capacity by 2050. Australia did not join that pledge, a move the opposition is labelling foolish. Ted O'Brien is the Shadow Minister for Climate Change and Energy. He'll be off to the COP conference later this week. Good morning to you. Welcome back to breakfast. Thanks very much, Hamish. Great to be with you. Uh, Why is Australia foolish not to sign up to this pledge on nuclear energy capacity? Hamish, this is big news for a COP, so the world's biggest climate change summit. Previously, COPs have never taken this move with zero emissions nuclear energy. But as John Kerry from the United States said himself when making this announcement at COP only about 48 hours ago, you can't get to net zero without some nuclear. And I think that's key because... Here in Australia, we grapple with how to tackle climate change, just like other countries do. And one of the lessons that I have learned as I've looked across the world at peer nations is there is no credible pathway to reach net zero without zero emissions nuclear energy. And that's that's just so important. Uh, on that, though, John Kerry's not saying Australia can't get there without nuclear. This is a broader commentary on the global picture, and clearly there are many nations that do have nuclear capacity and will continue to use that into the future. Why is it necessary that Australia must do this, in your view, given that we are blessed with so many renewable resources? Hamish, uh, this certainly is not a comment against renewables. We need renewables too. In fact, we need an all-of-the-above approach where every technology is considered. Um, So will renewables play an important role on our grid moving forward? I believe they will and they should. But the comments from John Kerry are just as relevant to Australia as they are other countries. 
But, Why? But, but to answer but, your question, are they though? Australia, Australia has a natural advantage in the in the renewable space. So I suppose that's the difference, and that's what I'm trying to get at here. Well, look, I mean, Australia has lots of natural advantages. You could also say Australia has the um, the greatest reserves of uranium in the world, right? Um, you, you could say Australia is a world leader with its natural advantages in gas. Um, so, you know, we are blessed as a nation. So what we have to do is work out the best, best pathway to get there. But firstly, we're talking here about a technology that's zero emissions. We're talking about a technology that gets prices down. And so Canada was another signatory to the communique at COP. If you look at the province of Ontario, they have up to 60% nuclear in their mix and their households pay half of what we do in Australia. Um, their grid is one-tenth as dirty. In other words, only one-tenth of emissions as Australia. We also saw yesterday that President Macron suggesting Australia should lift its ban on nuclear energy. And France has around 70% and they pay among the cheapest electricity in Western Europe. So, so what proportion... Cheap. What proportion of our energy mix should be nuclear in your view? Well, we're doing a lot of work on trying to answer that very question as we speak. But you at can the only moment you don't know you, or you, you don't can, have you an answer? You, cannot, you, you, you can only answer that question within the context of your own system, your own electricity grid. Um, and what you can't do or what I refuse to do is do what Labor has done with its 82% target. Labor try to get 82% target <laughs> renewables by 2030 without doing any of the analysis, Hamish. And Respectfully, I, I'm asking you about some questions about your policy and what your approach is here. There's plenty of time to discuss uh, the other side and what the government proposes. But uh, well, let's talk about Are you then, because you're not able to say what proportion of the energy mix it would be, you can't really then say how much it would cost? We will be announcing how much um, energy we believe should be coming from different sources as we move forward, Hamish. But if you want to know our approach, it's this. As firstly, you move forward before the for, next for, election? Firstly, for, of, of course, before the next election, we'll be very clear about the plan. Unlike Labor, Hamish, and I have to make that point because only last week the climate change statement came down. Chris Bowen goes to COP with emissions in Australia going up going up, Hamish. Right now, what wasn't the case over the last term of government under the coalition, this is because they didn't do the comprehensive work the coalition is doing right now on policy. But emissions but if we, in Australia if we, if we, are going up. If we're Prices talking are going about... Up. Renewables are running at one-tenth the pace of rollout that Labor promised. We're going to summer with the risk of blackouts, Hamish, and all of this is because Labor actually never did the due diligence. Uh, we are doing that right um, now, and we're being led by an all-of-the-above approach that considers all technologies to get prices down, keep the lights on, and to make sure we are also driving down emissions. But the, the Coalition had a decade in power. It could have built nuclear. It could have pushed the nuclear industry forward. I note that Tony Abbott, when asked about it back in 2014, said he was open to the idea, much as you are, you know, this sort of equal opportunity energy mix. Anyone that wants to be part of the mix uh, can can get involved. But he said he's not going to do it 
if there's an expectation of a government subsidy, if there's a good business model there, someone will come forward and do it. Isn't that part of the problem, that it's incredibly expensive and you'd need government subsidies to get a nuclear industry up? Oh, look, there is no doubt that you need government involved, um, as you do, um, as you reform any major energy system, Hamish. Um, that again, what's going to be different with the coalition is, is we're doing the sums on that and we'll be transparent when we announce our policy. Labor only a week ago announced an expansion of its capacity investment scheme. This is going so- to cost tens of billions of dollars, but they have not told us exactly how much it's going to cost. It is a blank check. And it mops up the fact they had promised 82% renewables on the grid by 2030. They have failed miserably. Everybody knows that, but now it's going to be the taxpayer that will have to mop it up, um, and we don't know how much it's going to cost. But, but Australia you, you, should you, not be in that situation. Ted O'Brien, you've said exactly the same thing. You want the taxpayer to help get the nuclear industry up, and you also can't tell us how much it would cost. Uh, sorry, Hamish, to be clear, are you wanting me to announce how much our policy is going to be cost before we announce our policy? Well, you're saying that Australia should sign That's up to this pledge at COP, uh, and yet you can't tell us what proportion of the energy mix it would be in Australia. You can't tell us how much it would cost, but you are saying that the taxpayer well, Hamish, would have so, to so the pledge, be part of footing the, pledge, the bill. The pledge, the, the, the pledge in COP is not one where each individual signatory comes forward and says... This is exactly the money we're contributing. It's it's not it's not a, a you know a, a funding um, pool where individual countries are saying this is how much nuclear we want. Uh, that's not the point. So what? So you know, I'm, I'm with all due respect. What you are asking me to reveal is not relevant for what is going on in COP at the moment. But would you be uh, what prepared to? Would you welcome a? Would you welcome a nuclear facility in your electorate? I would absolutely welcome a nuclear facility, whether it be in my electorate or any electorate around the country, where it is proven to be technologically feasible, has a social licence and is going to get um, prices down. Now, we will be very clear as a, an opposition, as a coalition, on answers to all of these questions. But this is why, Hamish, we need to have an open mind. Right now, where we have bipartisanship in Australia, it is to get to net zero. Labor is failing on every count. Prices, they promised $275 reduction power bills. Households are paying some of the highest prices in the world, gone up by up to $1,000. Emissions are going up. The EV target is running at one third of what they said. Renewables are called according to the Clean Energy Council, one tenth. So Uh, as Australia, we have to be humble enough at these conferences at COP to say, what are other countries doing? What peer countries are doing is they are saying, we are looking at nuclear energy as part of the balanced mix. We must in Australia be driven not by ideology, but by economics and engineering and learn from those countries. And that includes consideration for zero emissions nuclear energy. And people can run the the NIMBY argument all they like, but we will be very open and transparent as we always have been. We'll have to leave it there. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very Thank much, Thank you very Ted. much, Hank. That's the Shadow Minister for Climate Change and Energy, Ted O'Brien. Now we have a six-minute piece from Sabra Lane on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's AM program on Radio National, where she talks with Australia's Energy and Climate Change Minister, Chris Bowen. 
The headline of the story is, Could Australia Agree to Phasing Out Fossil Fuels? The United Nations annual climate summit's underway in Dubai as representatives from 200 countries try to agree on plans to cut greenhouse gas emissions and rising global temperatures. A draft of the final agreement shows negotiators are considering calling for an orderly and just phase-out of fossil fuels, although we won't find out what's been agreed to until next week. The Climate Change and Energy Minister Chris Bowen heads to Dubai later today and he joined me a short time ago. Chris Bowen, does Australia back this draft text pushing for a formal phase-out of fossil fuels? We certainly back a strengthening of language and efforts around the mitigation of climate change, and that's the negotiations I'm going into this evening. In my experience, Sabra, those words change around a lot during the negotiations, and some other countries have already indicated that they're not comfortable with that sort of language. But we'll certainly be backing a strong improvement to language on mitigation, uh, as well as representing Australia. I also chair the umbrella group of negotiators, which is Australia, US, UK, New Zealand, Canada, and a number of other countries. Uh, and obviously, I'll be consulting with them and putting our position, uh, Australia's position, uh, alongside the position of like-minded, that we need to see a step up in global action uh, on mitigating uh, emissions. Is Australia comfortable with those words, phase out? Well, uh, obviously, as I said, uh, Sabra, in my experience, those words change a lot uh, from draft to even our first negotiation session through the night. I would certainly... But it's it's a simple yes or... Sorry, it's a simple yes or no. Sabra, if I could just finish my point. And certainly we we are supporting... Uh, stronger language uh, on that sort of thing. But in my experience, as I said, some countries like China and the African Union have already said they are not comfortable with that sort of language. So that makes the negotiations difficult. Um, So in my experience, you go into these negotiations with a degree of flexibility, but you also go in pushing for stronger and more action. That's what I'll be doing on Australia's behalf. And that's what I'll be doing as chair of the umbrella group of negotiators. So the COP works uh, in, in these instances through groups. The African Union has already indicated they're not comfortable with that. On behalf of the Umbrella Group, I'll be uh, pushing uh, for stronger action. So phase out or phase down? What is Australia comfortable with? uh, Look, certainly a properly properly phrased uh, move towards phase out, I would be comfortable with. But as as I said, in my experience, uh, these words change around a lot. Australia has signed this so-called Glasgow Statement, meaning that we've agreed to stop financing international climate polluting projects. Does that begin immediately? Uh, Yes, we have signed that last night. And this reflects um, the position the government has taken since our election, but it formalises it, the Clean Energy Transformation Partnership formalises that undertaking of what our government has been putting in place since the election. It's really aligning our international financing efforts, uh, whether it be aid or Uh, loans or other things uh, on the global decarbonisation effort. And yes, that takes effect immediately. It's being reported that Australia will not agree to contribute to the summit's Global Loss and Damage Fund. Is that right? I see those reports. I'll be, we've made very clear, firstly, on loss and damage, we've been very active in the conversation. We've had a representative on the transition group towards loss and damage. Our key uh, point has been that it must support the Pacific, and we have been arguing for clear and defined support for the Pacific. Uh, We'll be saying more about our approach to global finance, including the Pacific Resilience Fund and other funds over the next few days. But it sounds like you won't agree to that global loss and damage fund, but you'll agree to funds for the Pacific? 
Well, the Pacific Resilience Fund is, in effect, a loss and damage fund for the Pacific, specifically focused on the Pacific, uh, and it's come from the Pacific. And certainly we are very strongly engaged uh, with the Pacific on the development of that Pacific Resilience Fund. As I think our listeners would understand, Australia wants to see uh, the Pacific's issues elevated. And the Pacific, you know, in my experience, I talk a lot to my Pacific climate counterparts. There are a number of global funds which they say have not worked for them and we want them working for them. And that's the bottom line that I'll be bringing to all these conversations. Australia is hoping to host the 2026 UN Climate Summit known as COP31. Will you find out in Dubai? Uh, well, at the, at the moment, all our conversations are on who's going to host next year, Sabra. Uh, it's a difficult situation. Uh, I think it's uh, you know difficult to be uh, saying we want to know who's hosting in 2026 when it hasn't been decided who's hosting in 2024. But we will be involved in that conversation across the board, and these things you know uh, uh, are focused on the most immediate. Uh, nobody has determined who's hosting next year. Formally, 2025 hasn't been determined, although uh, we can work solidly on the basis that Brazil will be hosting. Um, but we'll be involved in those conversations again. There's been some criticism about Dubai's hosting of this meeting. Well-known climate campaigner, the former US Vice President Al Gore, says that Dubai has abused the public's trust by naming the chief executive of one of the largest and least responsible oil companies in the world to head the event. Does he have a point? Look, I can only speak from my experience, and my experience with the COP president, uh, Dr Al Jabba, has been very positive, very strong. He's been very active, uh, I get, you know, WhatsApp messages from him all the time asking about Australia's views on various things. He wants a good outcome. Uh, he's also the chief executive of one of the world's largest renewable energy companies. So, uh, look, I think the point about this, Sabra, is if we only talk to people we agree with all the time and then talk to countries like us, then we are not going to uh, make progress on climate change. We have to really work hard to bring the world together. That means that means working with countries um, that are at different stages in the journey. Uh, every country in the world is either a fossil fuel exporter or a fossil fuel importer. Um, just sort of singling out certain countries, I don't think, is a particularly strong way to get a strong outcome. What we need to do is work across the board. That's certainly the cooperative approach I bring to the negotiating table. Chris Bowen, thanks for talking to AM. Good on you, Sabra. And Chris Bowen is the Climate Change and Energy Minister. Yes, we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your coming. It's been great to have you along. Now, I'd love you to follow this podcast because if you do that, you'll be alerted every time I publish a new episode. Also, I'd love to hear from you about what you think of this podcast. Is it good or bad? please let me know. Don't hold back and you can contact me via email at number 7 at icloud.com. Also, I'd love you to share this podcast. In fact, I almost insist you share this because it's important that we all know all we possibly can about the climate crisis, what we should do, who's responsible, how we should respond, what we should be saying, who we should be saying it to. Yes, please share this. Finally, I must note that my screen is still alive with stories about the climate crisis, and so I'll put as many links as I can in the show notes. So please go there, check out the show notes, look at the links, read the stories, and learn what you can about the climate crisis. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Now, please stay safe, take care, and we'll talk soon.